0: through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552.
1: Hi, Stephanie. I'm Leslie uh, Preston will be on the line, our host, any second now. But I just okay. want to thank you for the great um, opportunity for us to be live at your screening. Could you just tell the audience who you are while we're waiting for questions? Yes, I'm Stephanie James Wilson, the Executive Director of the New Jersey Amistad Commission Department of Ed. Uh, New Jersey Amistad Commission was mandated by legislation in August of 2002, and it basically mandated and instructed all New Jersey schools that they must include African American history and all of its content within the scope of the K-12 social studies curriculum for the state of New Jersey. So it gave us an opportunity to rewrite curriculum, to look at the content standards for social studies, to begin to instruct districts on instructional materials and classroom resources, as well as designing model curriculum for the state that is in compliance with the Common Core Standards, as well as looking at the park assessment to begin to talk about those primary resources that could be used in the classroom. Um, We were given the by Fox Search Light Pictures to be able to host through free screenings of the major motion picture bell, which is actually um, opening across the country now, and it's been, you know, it's having a uh, artist uh, sort of art house release in the state of New Jersey, which means it's being offered in certain select theaters and, you know, across various markets. So we did a screening last Thursday in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and tonight in Clifton, and I am very pleased to say that we did have pest houses in both locations. Uh, the film Bell really does talk about the life story of Dido Elizabeth Bell Lindsay Vigney, who was the great niece of uh, Lord Mansfield, who was the Lord Chief Justice of the of England in the late. Uh, 18th century, and especially when he was doing some cases surrounding the whole uh, Song case, which was basically a legal case um, that surrounded uh, slave trading and also uh, a major uh, slave vessel who actually very systematically killed murdered drowned um, those captives that were on board uh, in opposition of really being able to sell them at market because of uh, because of uh, claims was lack of water. Uh, those members of the Zong case, the crew, uh, specifically led by Captain Collingswood, drowned the Africans rather systematically over the course of three days and then claimed their insurance on their insurer uh, to try to compensate themselves for the loss of property. Um, and this case made it to the the Lord Chief Justice Court, uh, at the same time in which he was sort of navigating his great niece's so debut to society, and also the reality of sort of the cross section of race, social social standing, uh, historical content of you know of Belle as she enters into her womanhood in the late uh, 1700s in England, and sort of her positioning as an heiress, as an aristocrat, as, as a gentlewoman and a period of history in which African Americans are enslaved in all the other English colonies, and so the reality of what her life is like in England in that time with all of its genteel society and societal rules and everything else. So this case really does become rather seminal in regards to not only the slave trading history, because it is able to sort of become the president for the dismantling of the slave trade, but also really ushers in sort of a galvanized effort for the abolitionist movement in that they begin to really uh, postulate a position where they're going to begin sort of a public campaign, an outcry, because of the reality of how atrocious these murderous acts were. And so the abolitionist movement becomes organized, and then, you know, within a very short period of time, you begin to see, you know, legislation begin to move through that actually begins to stipulate insurance claims and what insurers are able to claim on slave ships. And within 10 years in English history, the transatlantic slave trade, the international slave trade, in which England was the leading um sort of, you know, proponents of and also the, the ones that are most capitalized off of this trade was dismantled in England, the uh, United States all the following year, and within 30 years, uh, England, England, you see the abolition of, the, of slavery completely in all of its, its colonies. So a movie like Belle becomes very important because we don't really know the stories of you know of these of these individuals and you know she's often not talked about in the battles of history. So it's wonderful to be able to see it on film. It's wonderful to be able to talk about it with teachers and be able to create curriculum materials, which we did on the Amistad resource, um, so that people will know who she is, her importance to history, her legacy in history, and to really begin to talk about sort of you know diaspora history that effectuate what, what happens here in America every day. Wonderful. Preston is on the line, but I have to ask you to explain her birthright. So Belle's birthright really becomes, you know, relevant and becomes sort of pivotal as to why she's even able to, put, you know, position herself in society the way she does, because she is an Anglo-African born on English soil. Uh, English colonies, you know, laws really stipulated that slavery was following the descendants of the mother, and once endurance servitude extended for Africans for life, African women that birthed children following that would have, you know, would file the descendants of the mother thereby being slaves. That was representative in all of the English colonies. However, in, on English, on the Isles, on the actual mainland, those laws were not applicable. So when um, Dido Bell's father um, actually uh, had relations with her mother, who was a slave, from the West Indies and was brought as a, to uh, English territory. When Dido was born, she was actually born on English ter- territory. She was actually born in England. And because of her birthright, because she was born on English soil, she was able, despite her color, despite the reality of her mother, to be able to claim her birthright as a Murray uh, descendant, thereby being able to reside and be raised in Kenwood House under the benefactor and tutelage of her great-uncle, whom she was left to be raised by as her father returned to sea. So, you know, her position if she had been born in any other space, if she had been born at sea in any other space or time, she had been born in the West Indies, she would have been a slave and, you know, and been a nameless, faceless, you know, slave child born of an English captain. But because she was born on English territory and because her father did sort of position that he was willing and able to take the risk and claim his child and wanted her brought up into the birthright. It thereby made her an heiress, descendant, and able to be raised at Kentwood House, positioning her to be in the position she was in with with um, Lord Chief Justice Murray.
0: Stephanie, this is uh, Preston Washington. Would you explain uh, the first anti-case of Mansfield?
1: The, the first case, I'm sorry, what did you say, the Somerset case?
0: The Mansfield case.
1: Uh, So Mansfield had a number of cases that came before the bench. The first case that sort of, you know, I guess positioned him as would would be, you know, why people were so concerned about where he would come down in regards to the case was the Somerset case, which had actually happened, uh, you know, a a couple years prior. Uh, Somerset was actually uh, an an escape, a runaway slave who actually sued for his his freedom under a a question of habeas corpus. And... uh, he, it came all the way to the Supreme Court, and Lord Mansfield erred on the side of actually the uh, the escaped slave, Somerset, in that he said that he, the chattel slavery could not be supported by any of the common laws of England, thereby sort of putting Mansfield in the position of being looked at as an abolitionist sort of judge. Um, he later sort of restricted his uh, opinion to be limited to that case and that case alone, but it sort of did sense you know, the, set the course for people to begin to think of him as sort of, you know, uh, uh, an enigma and, you know, a, a wild card in regards of where he would come down when this this fraud case, the Zong case, came before his some 20 years later.
0: Okay. Now, there was some insurance companies involved in these cases, the fraud. Um, yes.
1: Yes, it was insurance company. So Gregson was the uh, owner of the slave trading ship. Gilbert was the insurance uh, conglomerate that actually had insured the ship. And it was regular standard practice. It was a regular standard that was, you know, perpetuated on more than I think uh, England at the time had almost 7,000 slave ships that were, you know, on the open seas trading in, in captives, in African captives. Um, and this was an, a standard insurance policy. And so the Zong was insured basically for 30, 30 uh, pounds a head for every enslaved African that was on, on board. And so because they had basically tried to defraud um, the government or the insurers by claiming that uh, these Africans uh, needed to be killed because there was a lack of water supply, um, when in actuality – They they had not only had they miscalculated and they had extended the trip, but it also had rained, which meant that the fresh water supply, the water table on the ship had been restored. So when the ship actually arrived in Jamaica, it was actually replanted with enough water to have survived the entire journey with the entire original cargo of the ship, which was more than 400 enslaved Africans. So the, the, the real stipulation, and I guess the crutch of the case when it came in front of Mansfield, was whether or not these respective enslaved Africans should how, how where they were going to be killed. Because for them to be able to um, collect on the insurance money, they had to have been killed, not diseased, and not died of natural causes. If they had arrived in Jamaica, um, they would not have gotten the money and the monetary investment that they wanted to get out of these enslaved Africans. And the reality of their disease was as a result of the tight packing of the ship. So in order for them to galvanize on the insurance, if you have to collect off of it, they had to kill them in transit um, and not allow them to die of disease. So that's basically what the ship captains of the Dong and his crew decided to do. They systematically, over the course of three days, drowned more than 121 Africans chained together, throwing them overboard, and then, you know, came back to England and, and tried to... Take out an insurance claim, and it came to the Supreme Court and in front of Lord Mansfield because the insurers refused to pay.
0: And so, then explain the significance of this picture of, uh, of Belle.
1: So of who she was? Well, she was the great niece. She was the great niece that was, you know, raised in the house, and so, you know, I, you know, people have. You know, you, you, you read different opinions and different articles on what the effect of, might be of her on this case. So I, I will take it as a position of a, a man who has a beloved child, who he recognizes because of position as law, that if any other situation, there before the grace of God go I, she would have been no more or no less than those enslaved Africans that are thrown overboard. You can only begin to understand, and her positioning in his house, you know, she was learned, she was well-read, she actually took most of his notes, she was, you know, his quasi-law clerk. She was very aware, very astute, uh, you know, very impassionate and very intellectual, and there was a lot of conversations that, that is even in the film depicted and in, and in um, you know, autobiographical sketches are depicted in regards to the relationship between the two. So although it is no, you know, it has never been specifically referenced as a direct correlation, but you can only begin to see what, what the effect of raising such child, an Anglo-African child in one's home would have on a decision-making when you have a case of slaves that are coming before you, in which you recognize that this same child, this same child that you have raised and beloved, would be no different than those said enslaved Africans if she had been born in any other space and if you had not been able to protect her because of English common law and her being born on English soil.
0: And um, does she have any descendants? Did she ever marry?
1: She did. She did. She did. She She ended up marrying um, one of the... Uh, the actual John DeVinier who actually in the film is depicted as one of the you know one of the uh, the young lawyer and also one of the founders you know foundation of what becomes the abolitionist movement. She ends up marrying him. They have two sons, um, and she has a long list of defendants and ask, I mean defendants are actually her the last quarter as to have lived in South Africa, becoming South African citizens in the, I believe, the last of her descendants passed away in the either 1930s or 1940s. But she did have children by a She did marry, um, despite the fact that sort of social norms of England, which is, you know, a, a lot of the film is talking about sort of the realities of the constrictions of her limitations because of her coloring, despite her wealth and her social mm-hmm. positioning in England.
0: Okay, there's a painting of her. Bell uh, yes. became pretty famous. Why did that uh, particular picture have so much significance? This painting
1: Well, I think it's because of the reality that it's one of the first paintings when you begin to look at paintings that are coming out of that time period and which you see as an equalizer. You know, and I think that speaks a lot to the relationship in which she was positioned in the home. You know, most of the paintings that come out of that time bracket, you see um, those that are of African descent in a position of subservience and sort of background to sort of position um, the English subject, the white character on the paint, as one that is much more empowered. They're usually smaller. They're usually looking up. It is a much more uh, master-child or master-slave sort of relationship. And so the photographs of, you know, the painting of Belle and her cousin, Elizabeth Murray, who she was raised almost as sisters in the home together, is probably the first instance where you see that they're almost in, in equal position, even in regards to their clothing, you know, their size, their shape, their beauty. Uh, the only differential I think that a lot of people, and it, the story also, the painting also tells a story because you begin to see that although Elizabeth, they're both wearing the same kind of dress, the, uh, the famous painting of Belle has her depicted with fruit, a head wrap, a turban, so that it is sort of indicating, you know, on art, um, your, her, West, her West Indies uh, descendancy. Yeah. And her reality and her exoticness, even in among English society, her positioning of that. She was well-known as sort of Enigma. I mean, everybody knew about Lord Mansfield's Mulatto Charge. So, you know, it was not, she was not a secret among English society at the time. And yet she sort of disappears from the battles of history as, you know, other than this piece of art that, you know, hangs in the Mansfield home right now in Scotland.
0: Well, who were some of the other uh, famous abolitionists involved in the case that we've been talking about? And uh, what did yes, and what did the uh, what did sugar have to do with it? What was the connection to sugar?
1: Well, the the whole the whole sort of social campaign that the abolitionists really did utilize, and to sort of make this case a part of the public discourse, was over. Sort of the correlation for uh, English men and women to begin to think about their obsession with sugar, because so much of their trade was you know contingent on sort of you know being able to bring sugar, which was you know very an addictive additive to you know for for English cheese and the like. Um, the, most of the Caribbean colonies were funded off of their sugar, and then later, of course, cotton. So the the whole idea of the slave trade was to really feed the voracious appetites of these sugar plantations over across the English, you know, the channel into all of these colonies. And so the public campaign that the abolitionists really kind of ingeniously came up with when they began to create these pamphlets and began to talk about in public discourse was to associate for most English people that these atrocities that happen across this ship really happen as a result of English people's ferocious need to feed these colonial, you know, and Caribbean islands so that sugar can be produced for English people to be able to enjoy. So they are able to link and create a lineage for uh, people to understand that, you know, when you place a sugar cube sort of in your cup to think about the murderous acts that happen upon upon the Zong.
0: Wow. So can we say that uh, the abolitionists of that era was their movement funded by sugar, which was basically produced by slaves?
1: Well, I think, of, you know, a lot of them, you know, they, they fought from within and without. I mean, a lot of them, you, you, you know, you, a lot of the abolitionist movement were begin by, you know, certain members of the clergy in England, um, certain members of the cabinet, political, you know, appoint, political, and and also, you know, and social commentators of the time, and also, you know, those that had been able to access their freedom from enslavement, such as Aquiano, such as uh, Wilberforce, such as Divinier. Uh, you know, there's a number of them that are able and coming from, you know, various walks of life that are sort of, you know, uh, unifying under this whole idea of abolishing the transatlantic slave trade and being able to talk about sort of how negative it was and its effect on sort of worldwide commerce. But it, they were trying to dismantle one of one of the largest global economies, you know, economic engines at the time because for England it was not only just the trade in place, but it was also sort of the economic engine to keep a lot of their port cities alive. Liverpool was making ropes and votes and everything else. So it was not just those that were making money off the you know, the actual trade of slaves, but all the industries that came behind it for England in regards of all the influence that must go into the development of the slave trade. So, you know, to to really talk about abolishing that system began to really talk about shifting the whole scope of English's financial sort of capital at the time. So, I mean, it's a a large-scale undertaking, and I think, you know, they used a way to be able to discuss it that sort of brought it home for people in a way that people could understand very, very specifically. And because of the atrocities that was sort of happened on the ship, really did be able to talk about it in a way that people understood the discourse as to these murderous acts being linked to why this industry should change. Because if it's become so, you know, so about profitability, dollars, and cents, that people can be drowned for an insurance claim, then what becomes the, you know, the real mm-hmm. you know, importance of human life?
0: Yes. Uh, Last question, uh, Stephanie. Uh, Yes. For our audience, uh, tell us who was Equino. Equino. E Q U I N O. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes,
1: Equiano. Um, Equiano. Equiano. He actually, um, actually, uh, a child that was captured in Africa and actually was brought to the Americas, and he wrote one of the first slave autobiographies that was in print as to a first-person account of his experience in his capture, uh, of his transport, and of his enslavement in America. Uh, He was later uh, freed and moved to England and became one of the major um, pivotal stakeholders in the beginning of the abolitionist movement in England as well as America. And a lot of, you know, history history, um, courses as well as textbooks do cover and begin to talk about the, you know, autobiography of Equiano without really talking about, I guess, the cases in which he was, you know, sort of pivotally um, associated with.
0: Is the book he wrote still in print? Yes, it is. Okay. Well, um, that was my last question. Uh, is there anything you would like to say to leave with our audience, our listening audience?
1: Yeah, I would. Slight like has invested a lot of money to be able to tell these stories, and you know, uh, just like we drove the numbers for Twelve Years of Slave, and we understood the importance of these autobiographical sketches that tell the pictures of slices of uh, you know African life across the diaspora. This is also a film that I think is very important that's told and that is seen, and that you know, if it's being released and it's being told, then I would. I hope that we would go out and support it in droves. That we would. Uh, you know, put the impact of our dollar behind saying that we want to see these kind of films. I know that it is being, it is released, it is currently playing at the Clifton Commons Theater in which we were at today for the actual screening, and I know it's also playing in the Lowe's in Cherry Hill in southern New Jersey, and also uh, in one theater in Montclair and several theaters across New York City. So as it continues to release, I would encourage people to please go and find out Showtime, Buy a ticket, donate a ticket, but please support it with the power of our dollars so people know that these are stories that we do support, we do appreciate, we do want to see done again.
0: I'm sure we will. And you just brought up a couple of other items uh, before we leave here. Are there any other books, museums, or other movies um, that our audience would be interested in? And also leave us with your contact information.
1: So uh, there's a whole list of the Amistad web-based curriculum resource, which is available K-12 for this for the state. It's available for free for every New Jersey teacher. has a list of all kinds of resources and library materials, books, videos, lesson plans, um, and, you know, all kinds of ancillary materials that will be in support of this movie as well as a lot of others and has ideas for, you know, different lesson plans and things that could be developed as well as resources that can be seen um, across, you know, for teachers across the state. So I would encourage people to please go download the materials, utilize them in your classrooms. We have model curriculums that are on there. We are debuting even some addendums that are including student portals so the teachers can create virtual classrooms. And that whole curriculum initiative will be debuted on uh, July 1 of this year. And we'll be doing an intensive summer institute with teachers in the first week of August, uh, the fourth fifth, in New Jersey at Rowan University. That is an application process that is available online on our website, and I will leave our website address here at the Department of Ed. It is www.njamistachcurriculum.com.
0: That's njamistachcurriculum.com. Correct. Stephanie James Wilson, I thank you yes. so, so much. Uh, I know it was it's my been pleasure. A busy evening uh, for you. I like going on there in New Jersey for you to take the time out to come on the, the gift of freedom and share this information with us. And hopefully uh, we can do this again in the future.
1: Absolutely, it's my pleasure, and I thank you for having me, and I thank you for being a part of the screening tonight. And, you know, and thank you for you know really and truly allowing us the voice to be able to sort of position this story for a white, you know, much more large scale audience.
0: Great. Take care again.
1: Okay. Take care.
0: Okay. You too. Good night. Bye. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Uh, my guest was Stephanie James Wilson, a curator uh, there in the state of New Jersey. My name is Preston Washington. You've been listening to the Gift of Freedom, that's G-I-S-T, Freedom. Our producer is Leslie Gift. And if you have ideas that you would like to share about future programs, Don't hesitate uh, to contact Leslie. Also, this program will be available on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. Again, my name is Preston Washington. I've been your host, and good night, everybody.